0: Bum bum ba bum bum ba dum, bum 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 ba bum bum ba bum bum ba dum, bum 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 ba bi dum 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 bum dum bum 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 dum dum bum dum dum bum bi dum 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 bum dum 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 you are now in session with the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. I'm Lisa Gullickson.
1: I'm Brad Gullickson. And
0: each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four-color realm. This month we're exploring romances beyond the heteronormative and we're applying Stan Tatkin's Wired for Dating to their relationship woes. This week we're peering into the staircase and seeking closure for Maya and Grace in Tilly Walden's fantastical romance on a sunbeam.
1: Red alert, red alert. Red alert. Hit the decks!
0: Is that a thing people say? Yeah, Hit that the is dicks! a
1: thing people say because we have a new iTunes review from It Mod superfan Chris Chaka.
0: Oh, it's a good red alert. Yeah. Red alerts are generally bad.
1: No, nah, not on this show. Oh. Red alerts always are good. We've I, firmly established that within I love pop it. culture. Yes, I love it. This is a positive red alert <laughs> because we've won over It Mod superfan Chris Chaka over to CBCC. Yes! And he's given us a five stars review.
0: Oh, that is the exact number we need from each of our listeners.
1: And we're going to read it on the air because that's our promise to our favorite listeners. Yes. His title is Critical Comic Love for All, and he writes, Great podcast for dedicated comic fans, people who wish they had the time and the money to be dedicated comic fans, or people who just dig listening to a funny and adorable real life couple delve into what makes super and not so superhero couples work. Brad and Lisa make even the most larger-than-life characters relatable by framing them with emotions we can all connect with. Every episode is a blast, even if you've never heard of the particular pair of comic lovers in question.
0: Aww, Thanks, thanks Chris. Chris. Ooh, Jinx.
1: Yeah, Jinx. You owe um, me a Coke. Okay, but I don't. we don't drink Cokes anymore. No, we
0: don't. We yeah, don't. We We're very healthy. Soda.
1: <laughs> LaCroix, though, that's soda water, and that's not real soda, so that's fine, right, Lisa? Yep. Good. But seriously, Chris, thank you so much for leaving such a kind review. They really do help us reach more listeners on Apple Podcasts. And
0: we think you're pretty adorable, too.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, you know, like, here's the thing. This last month has been our most popular month of episodes so far.
0: How cool. Yeah,
1: we're talking uh, Bloom, Bingo Love, Midnighter, and Apollo. We've had more downloads on those last three shows than we had during the entire Batman run, which is crazy to me.
0: That's amazing. Welcome new listeners.
1: But something to keep in mind when we're choosing our couples. Maybe the classics aren't the guys that everybody wants to talk about.
0: I think people want to talk love and all different kinds of love, so we have to keep it fresh.
1: Keep it fresh. And so yes, we're going to be doing that this episode with Anna Sunbeam, but we still have more housekeeping to do before we jump into the meat of the episode, Lisa.
0: Okay, let's keep this house.
1: So last week we were at the Lost Weekend 11 Film Festival at the Alamo Draft House in Winchester, Virginia. We were there with In the Mouth of Darkness and we sponsored Jordan Peele's Us. If you have not seen that film, I highly recommend it. If you've already seen this film, watch it again. It's certainly worth a rewatch. Better, better movie on the second viewing, I would say. Um, While we were there, though, we hung out with another Lost Weekend 11 sponsor, uh, Steve from Four Color Fantasies. Yes. And we got talking, and he's doing something pretty cool over at the Winchester Comic Book Store, and I thought we could share it with our listeners who are in the DMV area. It's a charity event. Um, Four Color Fantasies is doing a silent auction for over 50 sketch covers done by professional and local artists with all the money going to the Literacy Volunteers Winchester area. There's covers by folks like Jeff Lemire, Mike Perkins, Jim Moffat, and many, many other talented artists. Uh, Bidding starts on April 1st, so that's in the past, get to it, and ends on free comic book day, May 4th. Uh, And, you know, go to the Four Color Fantasies Facebook page there's more information there. I just want to say I've seen the sketch cover that Jeff Lemire has done. It's a Batman shadow mashup cover and it is amazing.
0: That sounds, that sounds amazing. Yeah.
1: I have not placed a bid on it yet, but I need to do so.
0: (laughs) Place your bid aggressively. Yeah.
1: So I don't know. Support your local comic book stores, folks. Even if you don't have four-color fantasies next to you, find the shop that's right around the corner. Go visit them. Spend some money. Keep these businesses alive. They mean the world to all of us, obviously.
0: And you'll probably hang out for a while, meet some cool people. Maybe you'll find the love of your life.
1: And what I like doing at the comic book store is... You know, I read something like Kevin Panetta and Savannah Ganacho's Bloom, and you walk into a shop, and it's mostly superhero books, and you start spreading the gospel of independent comics as well. So while you're supporting your local business, support your, you know, independent artists and spread the love.
0: Absolutely. We're all about spreading the comic book love.
1: Uh, now, we do realize that we are a week late on this episode, and to our listeners, we apologize.
0: That We do. We are very, very sorry.
1: But it's Lisa's fault.
0: It is. (laughs) Um, Well, first, like, I had to leave Lost Weekend Film Festival because I had a really super cool family event. My Grandpa Joe turned 100 years old.
1: Happy birthday, Grandpa Joe.
0: On this planet for a century, killing it, being a super great grandpa. And then right after that, after doing Lost Weekend and being watching movies, 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 and being sleepless, and then getting on a plane... I contracted myself a really fantastic cold.
1: Yeah. So then
0: I was sick, but now I'm all better. I'm I'm going to try to uh, not snork directly into the microphone. Brad can edit out the <laughs> the snorkage. I can only
1: do so much, Lisa.
0: <laughs> so, um, we apologize for being
1: late. We actually did try to record this episode a couple times, but I was so finicky with the sound, uh, I was losing my damn mind and having major panic attacks. <laughs> so Yeah. well, so yeah. It's not just Lisa's fault. It's also a little bit of Brad's <laughs> fault.
0: <laughs> well, when we talk about our love expert this week, you'll know that part of my job as your partner is to... You know, regulate your central nervous system (laughs) and be a soothing presence in your life. So um, if part of that is putting out our little podcast a week or so later, that's a okay with me.
1: All right, well let's get into it. Mm-hmm. Um like 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 we said at the t- start of the show, we're discussing On a Sunbeam published by First Second Books, the same publishers behind Bloom. The artist and writer is Tilly Walden, uh, and you know, at 22 years old, she was the youngest person ever to win an Eisner Award oh my
0: goodness. for her book
1: Spinning. And today, she's 23 years old. We hate her. How dare she be so (laughs) talented and so young. She grew up in New Jersey and Austin, Texas. She was a competitive ice skater, and that plays heavily into her autobiographical book, Spinning, for which she won the Eisner. And just as she was becoming bored with fine art studies, she took a comics workshop moderated by famous cartoonist Scott McCloud, whose understanding comics was a big influence in my own teen years, (laughs) um, Tilly lists manga, uh, Studio Ghibli films, Alison Bechdel's Fun Home, Craig Thompson's Blankets as influences, and I think that totally tracks when reading on a sunbeam. Absolutely. She was still in high school when a British publisher, Avery Hills Publishing, put her first book, The End of Summer, onto shelves. Wow. Yeah, so major talent here, uh, a prodigy for sure. And Anna Sunbeam turned me into a mega fan and I need to go back and read all of her work.
0: Yeah, I. it's funny that list of influences because Anna Sunbeam is such a unique and magical place with flying fish and suspended houses and... And um,
1: But, like, you can see Craig Thompson absolute. mashing into a Miyazaki movie, right? Yeah. Like, that's what On a Sunbeam is.
0: It's so funny, like, when you pick apart the DNA of this book, you go, like, okay, that makes it's sense. coming together. <laughs> I can see it so, in a beautiful way, yeah, in a completely new sure, and fantastical sure. way.
1: So, Lisa, who are we using as our guru this week? Is it the same guy we've been using for the last three weeks?
0: That is how this podcast works. <laughs> Dr. Stan Tatkin is has been our relationship guru for this very special month of episodes. And I'm kind of sad that this is our last week with Dr. Tatkin.
1: He's easily our best guru. He blows away John Gray and Chapman.
0: And I think he's opened up a whole different realm of love gurus that we can dive into. I'm really excited for our next love expert. I'm not going to spoil it yet, but it it's more in this vein of science-based relationship counseling. I think
1: what Lisa and I discovered pretty early on in this podcast, in picking quote-unquote classics or let's just say, bestsellers from the relationship section of Barnes & Noble, like The Five Love Languages and like Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, we discover that our way of thinking does not match up with their their way of thinking. And actually, we find a lot of the bestsellers out there in relationship land pretty terrible.
0: Yeah, but um, I don't know if Stan Hatkin counts as like a bestseller, but I think that he is...
1: Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying he's not a bestseller. He's not the guy you see at the at the front of every relationship section. You have to dig a little bit to find Stan Tatkin, which is what you did. And I'm so glad that we didn't just go over to, I don't know, uh, Dr. Phil McGraw. Yeah. (laughs) So for those Tilly Walden fans who are just jumping onto this episode, Lisa, who is Dr. Stan Tatkin?
0: Dr. Stan Tatkin is the author of Wired for Love and Wired for Dating. He takes a psychobiological approach to relationship counseling, marrying the sciences of psychology and biology. In Wired for Dating, he lays out right in the introduction that his approach to dating is meant for any two people who are looking for a committed relationship. They can be gay, straight, bisexual, asexual. His approach is non-gendered and science-based, which I really appreciate. So last week with Midnighter and Apollo, we talked a lot about what he calls the couple bubble, which is an implicit agreement that when two people are in a relationship, they are mutually protective of each other. So in Midnighter and Apollo, Midnighter literally went to hell and back For Apollo. And the maintenance of this couple bubble has to be negotiated and affirmed all of the time in a relationship to establish you really are my priority. Your well being is as valuable as mine, and so on. So, in On a Sunbeam, we see Mia and Grace building a relationship and starting to negotiate where that couple bubble is and also with the relationship of Alma and Char and how they as a couple take over other other the other person's burdens mm-hmm, and right. complete each other where one person feels inadequate the other person picks up the slack so this week i want to talk about chapters 9 and 10 in wired for dating do your nervous systems play well together So when you're in a couple, part of your job is to both soothe and excite your partner. And most of our reactions, we react less rationally with the primitive parts of our brain first.
1: That makes sense with me.
0: (laughs) So when you're stressed or tired, Uh you might have an emotional reaction to something. And it's my job to kind of soothe it and... and calm that primitive part of your brain. You,
1: did you select these chapters before I had my meltdown trying to put this episode together a few days ago?
0: Yes, I did. And Dammit. these these, are, <laughs> these notes are from last week, and I've actually subtly tried to... Put his suggestions into into, my brain, into how I interact with you when you have these creative flare ups.
1: You're using this podcast to teach me lessons?
0: No, to teach myself lessons (laughs) of when Brad is feeling, um creatively out of control or frustrated with himself, (laughs) what can I do as his partner to better regulate his nervous system and calm and soothe him? And
1: pull him out of his mopey status.
0: (laughs) That's right. Your nervous system is what regulates arousal. And I'm not just talking like sexy, sexy arousal. It's more like what makes you excited and reactive and what makes you feel calm and soothed. So your sympathetic nervous system is the system that amps you up and your parasympathetic nervous system is the system that calms you down. And they're both part of that primitive part of your brain that's in charge of fight or flight. And your your brain, like, since it's the primitive part of your brain, it doesn't really delineate between degrees of danger. So, for example, like... Back in the day, when we were out living on on the plains, like, it was to protect you against predators and tigers, but nowadays, it doesn't delineate between, like, is it a tiger, or is it just some kind of, like, emotional hurt? Got it. So, whether it's a tiger or a case of hurt feelings, the most important thing is that you address it immediately, with urgency, so, one of the things Dr. Tatkin recommends in couples is quick repair. So if you see your partner have an emotional flare up, mm-hmm. you want to go into soothing mode immediately.
1: I don't know, but why should why should you go into the defensive mode when your partner is being uh, such a jerk?
0: Well your partner is having an emotional flare up, and that in your brain that says like, there's danger, so you're not going like. All you're doing is saying there's no real danger. So if you have an emotional flare-up of you are writing and you get stuck on a point and you're feeling frustrated, my job isn't to go like, you have no reason to feel frustrated. My job is to say like, it's okay to be frustrated. There's no actual danger. Mm. That's all you're you doing. You just have to
1: process your emotions and you and, and and that person who is responding in such an aggressive uh, emotional state is actually coming from a very defensive, self-loathing point of view.
0: Well, because that's where the reaction comes from. The right, reaction right, comes right. from okay. I'm in some kind of physical danger, and so your partner is job is to go like there is no physical danger. Everything's fine.
1: And that- both partners are going to be this way at some point in their timeline. All,
0: all of the time. Yeah,
1: and go back and forth.
0: Right. Um, so that's the idea of quick repair. When you have an emotional flare-up, call on your partner to soothe you. When you notice that your partner is having an emotional flare-up, it's your job to soothe them. It's this idea of maintaining kind of a mutually beneficial status quo
1: okay okay yeah 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 and uh, you know it seems like uh in our relationship you tend to be that person and i guess my question comes from a defensive place in itself because i find that you have to cater to my uh uh uh, emotional flare-ups on a pretty regular (laughs) basis i i
0: think you're associating it most with you know this past, week. I, this past week where there's been a lot of frustration and a lot of anger, but also it can be like how I can get into a mode where I feel down on myself because I'm not putting out enough of my own art, putting out enough of my own articles and writings, and then... You know, it's your job to encourage me and, and that kind of thing. Right, right, right. So it, it's not just, not necessarily like in a relationship you're putting out fires all the I'm time. I'm just
1: feeling like the bad guy in this podcast, Lisa.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my goodness. This is a real peek behind the curtain, people. You're not the bad guy. <laughs> we're, we're maintaining each other. Okay, got it. Okay, another thing he says to, um, for couples to continuously regulate their um nervous systems together is a practice called quiet love so quiet love is engaging in separate activities while still close so that can be like we're both sitting in the same room reading separate books or you're working on your computer and I am you know cleaning the kitchen that never happens I never clean but you know like that kind of thing where it's just like we're together but we're we're do we're not engaged with each other um actively. actively. So those acts of quiet love facilitate bonding neurochemicals, the chemicals of serotonin, oxytocin and vasopressin. So just being together separately helps continuous bonding.
1: In on a sunbeam there's lots of opportunities for quiet love.
0: Absolutely. For sure. okay, yeah, and cool. we're and we'll talk about that as we're talking about the book. Now in this mutually beneficial relationship where we're both regulating each other's nervous systems, trying to keep each other calm when we need to be calm, trying to keep each other excited when we need to be excited. That doesn't mean that we're conflict free. Every once in a while, there will be disagreements. And that's where Stan Tatkin starts bringing up the art of fighting with each other. So he has a whole strategy for resolving conflicts while still maintaining each other's nervous systems and still maintaining the couple bubble. So one of his strategies is using the neurochemical oxytocin to our own advantage. So actually in the book, he talks about a study where they had couples snort Oxytocin, chemical huh. oxytocin, and then and then get in uh, and then get into an argument. So I'm just going to read a section from the book. Research has found oxytocin to be correlated with the longevity of relationships, as well as the ability to be empathetic, trusting, supportive, generous, and communicative. This includes how we fight. Beat Ditson, 2013, and her colleagues in Europe found that couples who sniffed oxytocin during a conflict had better communication than did couples without the huh. extra dose of oxytocin. Huh. So, <laughs> like, they would have uh, have couples snort oxytocin and then have an argument, and they communicated better.
1: So we need some oxytocin in this apartment.
0: Well, that would be great, but there is actually <laughs> ways to promote oxytocin in our brain.
1: Okay, well, let me grab my pencil and notepad.
0: (laughs) So oxytocin is the chemical of empathy. So if you actively try to put yourself in your partner's shoes and understand where they're coming from, that act enough will stimulate the release of oxytocin, which will help us fight better.
1: Huh, okay, all right. Anything else?
0: He also says to lead with relief. So that idea of, We're about to get into an argument. So the first thing I want to do is soothe the other partner and have the other partner soothe me. So going like, I see there's a conflict. I understand where you're coming from. Let's try to talk about this reasonably and rationally. So soothe the feeling first then address the actual conflict.
1: This requires the one partner who's on the defensive side to be actively engaged in solving the issue and not being emotional themselves, which can be very hard when the person is being so aggressive in their emotional flare-up.
0: But it's just a practice of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. You see the emotional flare-up, you feel the emotional flare-up, you address it. And then you argue, as opposed to letting the emotional wave carry you to a negative place, a non-constructive place. And and somebody
1: reading Dr. Stan Tatkin's book or putting a podcast together about couple relationships using Stan Tatkin's book is theoretically in an actively engaged place already, so when these situations arise, they can adapt using this information.
0: Yeah. It's just more mindful. And another thing he recommends is when you're arguing, maintain eye contact, because when you are like the way that the eye works, there is actually a very small area of clarity in your vision and rapid eye movement kind of fills out the rest of our vision to give us the sense of clarity, But in actuality, if you're not looking directly at a person, Uh your brain is just filling in the gaps.
1: Yeah, and and I mean, that's certainly the case for us. When we get into fights with each other, we tend not to engage directly with that person's face, right? So what I'll do is I'll get mad and I'll storm off and I'll go have a huff somewhere else. Or if we're in the same room, I'll stare off into the middle distance because that's my main mode of argument.
0: That's right. And – um. Your your brain kind of fills in what you think my face is doing, right, right, right. which leaves a lot of room for misinterpretation. Sure,
1: sure. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Eye contact. Got it.
0: Yes. Um, so to sum up, when you're fighting, start with empathy. Uh-huh. Empathy will release oxytocin, which will make you more empathetic and be able to argue better. Um, lead with relief, address the emotion first and the, and what you need to do second, um, and then make sure that you're maintaining eye, t- eye contact when you are having an argument because there will be less room for misinterpretation of your partner's feelings.
1: All right, got it, got it, got it.
0: So uh, Dr. Tatkin does give a little do and don't list for how to argue which I'd like to read very quickly. It's on page 206. Okay, here we are. So here are some do's and don'ts for fighting well with your partner. Do make sure you close visual proximity to your partner when entering into a conflict. Don't position yourself to the side of your partner, but make sure you are straight on, face-to-face, eye-to-eye. Don't manage conflict over the phone or via email or text messaging. Don't focus on your own concerns, needs, and wants. Know your partner's needs and wants and concerns and be able to articulate them. Do always lead with relief. Explain, justify, or counter only when relief has been achieved. Don't assume that your partner knows you are being friendly and not threatening. Do use your ambassadors, which are the rational part of your brain, they're the opposite of your primitives, to come up with a mutually agreeable solution. Use your primitives to feel and empathize. Don't act as if you're the only person or the most important person in the relationship.
1: Okay. All right. Good list. Let's bring it to On a Sunbeam. Yes. I think one of the interesting aspects to this book is that it was originally published as a webcomic, and you can still, to this day, consume it in that fashion if you'd like to. Oh, my it's goodness. all online.
0: It is a fat book if yeah. you guys haven't looked looked at the physical-
1: It's over 500 pages. Yeah. Um, I think First Seconds Books has put out a really beautiful package. It's- It's an awesome looking book. It's something that is enjoyable to hold and to flip through uh, and to actively engage in. I love, love this just as a product. Now, in the interest of brevity, I am going to use the plot synopsis from Google Books rather than using my usual seven-page document summary.
0: I love your seven-page document summaries. I
1: don't know if listeners feel the same, Lisa.
0: You make an excellent point.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So here's what Google Books has to say. Um... Throughout the deepest reaches of space, a crew rebuilds beautiful and broken down structures, painstakingly putting the past together. As Mia, the newest member, gets to know her team, the story flashes back to her pivotal year in boarding school, where she fell in love with a mysterious new student named Grace. Yeah. When Mia grows close to her new friends, she reveals her true purpose for joining their ship, to track down her long lost love. I adore this book. And in particular, I adore the universe that it has constructed, this blend of fantasy and science fiction. And, I mean, it's more fantasy than it is science fiction, right? You know, there are ships in the shape of fish because it's cool looking.
0: Right. (laughs) And I think
1: that's sort of the Miyazaki-ness of it all. Yeah. Uh, And I respond quite well to that. Uh, There are no men, but... Them, they pronouns exist; therefore, gender exists.
0: It's never really addressed, and I feel like I can feel the like negative space where men would be, but not like in a negative way, in like a really interesting way. Like it's like it's not even worth bringing up.
1: Well, what's interesting is when this question is given to Tilly Walden in interviews, she responds with, "Well, the cat's male, so there are men." (laughs)
0: <laughs> That's good enough for fair me. Fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. Uh
1: so yeah, anyway, I just I just think it's a really interesting universe and I like and appreciate how it doesn't try to explain what we're seeing. We're just living in the world.
0: Yeah, and it and it's just it could be just a coincidence that everyone we meet has two moms and everyone we meet with the exception of Elliot is identifies as female.
1: Right. Okay, so let's get into it. Lisa, you have several tabbies in this massive book. Listen to this.
0: Yeah, so many tabbies that I actually ran out of tabbies while reading this book, and uh, my color coding system kind of fell apart.
1: <laughs> so let's uh, begin at the beginning. That's a very how it good works. place to start. Yeah. Let's start
0: at the very Chapter beginning.
1: one it's a three panel page, that first page. You see space. And then you see a close-up of Mia in her fish-shaped ship. She's staring out into the void. She does not have a happy expression. She does not have a sad expression. It's relatively blank. And she is approaching a structure. It looks like a massive church in space. And she is being dropped off with this reconstruction crew that spend their uh, time, or I guess, that earn their living visiting different uh, buildings in space, different objects in space, repurposing them in some cases or restoring them in other cases. They're artisans of a sort.
0: Yeah, they're artisans and historians and
1: and story keepers.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I love 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 that. You know, they, they land into a, a building and they get to know that building. They get to document that building, and sometimes they have to destroy that building.
0: So Mia gets introduced to the crew of this ship that she'll be working with, and um, she's looking for Alma. And then there's also Shar. Jules and Elliot or L.
1: And just like how you're just dropped into this universe of fish-shaped spaceships and no men, you have to play a lot of catch up with the crew members too. There's not a lot of exposition going on in On a Sunbeam.
0: Yeah, and it's the same and and I'm imagine that that's how Mia feels cuz you get the sense right away that this crew has been together for a while and they have established a rapport with each other. Yeah, they have
1: a bond and she's an outsider. Yes. So in some regards, Mia is a gateway for the reader. But in a lot of ways, she doesn't fulfill that purpose. You know, like she's not there to ask questions. She's just the new person. So she's not asking the questions that the reader might be asking. Right. Yeah. I, like It's very immersive. It's very immersive. I thought a lot about Ridley Scott's Alien when reading the first chunk of this book, where you're on the Nostromo, you're meeting all these people, but you're not given bios on anybody. You have to play catch up, as we were saying. Yeah. And that really is my favorite style of science fiction storytelling. And as we're learning who these people are, or as we're experiencing the first few chapters of this book, it suddenly jumps back in time to Mia's school years. And again, you're just dropped right into this school the way you're dropped right into this spaceship, and you have to understand the place and the environment of the world and what the social statuses are. Uh, the, The world looks a lot like Hogwarts in Harry Potter.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a
1: major J.K. Rowling influence on this book.
0: Yeah, strong, strong Potter vibes, um, but when we first meet Mia, we see that she is not desiring to fit in. Like she, the way she wears her uniform, it's all rumpled.
1: She's determined to be the classic 80s school outsider.
0: Yeah. All of the other kids are going to an assembly and she's like, I'm not going. So she decides to skip uh, school assembly so she can go sit with some fish rockets.
1: And And like, like that's another aspect to the universe is the way sports work and the way games are throughout the book. The crew members are playing this sort of video game Dungeons and Dragons type deal Yeah, that's never fully explained. We don't quite understand the rules, but we just understand that they are invested heavily into it. And at school, this sport, which is for the most part um, like soccer or football. Yeah, some or- kind
0: of rocket polo. What's
1: what's that thing in Harry Potter? The golden snitch? They're like- we're ter- see. Here is the problem with Brad Elise's. We're not the biggest Harry Potter fans. No. <laughs> uh, what's the? It's the Golden Snitch. Anyway, whatever. It's that wizard sport, but with these fish rockets in an arena.
0: Yes. Um, so, Mia eventually does get found out by an admi- administrator, and she's sent to Mrs. Adams' office, is where she meets Grace, who is also in Mrs. Adams' office.
1: Yeah, two bad kids.
0: Yep. And um, they're kind of going, you know, what are you in for? And uh, Grace says creative oppression because she's wearing like these super sparkly, non-uniform shoes. And I like how uh, Mia just right off the bat nags her and is like, those are shoes for five-year-olds. And Grace is like, well, then why do they come in my size then? Quidditch, oh Lisa. Oh, my God. Quidditch. It's Quidditch. The game is
1: Quidditch. Sorry, sorry, Oh I my goodness.
0: You. Well, I was like literally not being able to think about anything else while I was talking. <laughs> so thank you for closing that loop.
1: Yeah, but, you know, like, like you're saying, you know, Mia is mocking Grace's shoes.
0: But she's not doing it. Like, to me, it's Mia is expressing interest in Grace, and Grace is being a little bit standoffish, and she's not really picking up. On Mia's forwardness, and mm-hmm. we find out later it's because she has something about herself that she's trying to hide. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Mia is really the one who tries to create a relationship with her, and then later we have the scene at the lunch room where Mia invites Grace to have lunch with her friends, and she's like, and Grace is like, no thanks, and then Mia lashes out and goes like, well, like why are you being so weird or whatever?
1: And do you think that their initial attraction comes from that moment in the? principal's office, where she sees a, a, a like-minded um, outsider, or not maybe not necessarily a like-minded outsider, but another person who doesn't belong in this system of education?
0: I think yes. And also, as we get to know them more as a couple, there is a lot of about Grace that makes Mia curious. And I think that Mia likes the idea of unfolding a right. mystery. Grace
1: is holding back a lot.
0: Yeah, and and she, and she hates to do it, but it's also part of her like writerness. She has a very rich internal world that was influenced by her childhood.
1: Grace doesn't really get involved or become interested in Mia until she learns about Mia's desire to join the sport and the fact that she's a freshman, she's denied entrance into that sport. That's uh, that's a game for sophomores and up. And Grace agrees that that's unfair because this person loves this thing. Why wouldn't you want somebody who loves this thing to participate in this thing? And Grace volunteers to find a game way for her to get in. She encourages her to um, pursue the sport despite the rules.
0: I think also uh, Grace doesn't see the kinds of limitations that Mia sees Mm, mm. and she has more opportunities than Mia has. because
1: Grace is coming from a place of privilege as we learn. She's from the staircase, you know, this this off-limits world of wealth. You know, her family are loaded. So she's always been given everything she's desired, really until she's placed into this school for her own good, quote unquote.
0: She's placed in the school because she wants to go to the school. That's established in the scenes with her sister. Oh, yeah,
1: you're right, you're right. That she
0: wanted to go to school, and her parents did not want to let her go to school.
1: Right, 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 right. I'm uh, getting ahead of myself. She went on that hunger strike. Right. I'm trying to insert dramatic attention where it doesn't quite exist just yet. Okay, okay.
0: (laughs) That's okay. Um, I want to jump back just a little bit to a moment of quiet love that gets established between Mia and Grace, and it's right after the lunchroom incident Mia goes to Grace's room. Grace, because of her influence, has her own room. Mia's like, "I didn't even know you could get your own room here." But she goes to Grace's room to apologize and uh, and she's like, "You know, just let me see your room." and she's like, "Okay, you can come in. It's nothing really very special." and they and Mia just goes to like just sit with her, and they just sit together. And
1: And they stare out into space.
0: Yeah. And it just creates a moment of bonding for them that sets up their rapport. This is where they go to get away from the world. It's where Grace reads to her. They look out the window and they really become a couple in, in this room.
1: And that basically ends chapter one, and then we return to what we'll call the present timeline with Mia on the ship with the crew of Restorationists. And what's interesting about the book is we are introduced to Mia and Grace as a couple or as a potential couple in the school, but when we see Mia again with the crew in the future... Grace is nowhere to be found. And so there's this mystery of, well, we know something's coming that's going to separate Grace and Mia. What is that? And also, well, what is Grace seeking now in the present timeline? Because from the jump, she's not, it, it, it's not obvious that she's on a mission by any means.
0: Yeah, how the 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 present relates to the past. Right, right, right. I do think uh, an important point of the present storyline is the relationship of Alma and Shar Because Shar is technically the captain of the ship, but she really is more engaged with being with the buildings and she loves to take different elements from the building to add to her collection. And she is really involved in all of the documentation and she keeps an elaborate journal. And she's really more interested in that side of it, while Alma is more interested in the, the military structure of things. She is more of the one to act in charge. And I think that this is a case where we see, and, and they're a couple, they're a, a romantic couple. So I think this is a place where we see how a couple relationship relates to each other and kind of fills in each other's gaps and how that really aids to the cohesion of the group And then later when Mia starts to go off track and explore the staircase and creates like she breaks the staircase in this building um, and Char gets ejected from the ship. We see how the destruction of that unit um, couple unit destroys the cohesion of the team.
1: Well, right. But before there's that uh, problem with not the outer world staircase, but the actual physical staircase of this building that they're working on. Right. It gets a little confusing uh, talking about it, considering there is a planet called the staircase. And
0: then there is a staircase that is also called a staircase, I guess.
1: <laughs> but but, but the, their romantic relationship of Alma and Char serves as this thing that Mia lost and you know, while she's witnessing Char and Alma together, we don't know it. But on a reread, it, this is this is, they serve as this this um, example. broken dream.
0: Oh well, no, I think they serve as an example, an example,
1: but of something that Mia was going to have or possibly yeah. could have and lost.
0: That's true, and I think it's a huge influence on her conversation when she finally gets to reunite.
1: Right. So when the building staircase breaks because of Mia going where she doesn't belong and that action shatters the relationship between Char and Alma, it's yet another relationship that Mia has destroyed. Yeah, and, and she that sees it ignites as a, yeah. her final charge to find grace.
0: And she sees it as a trend in her life. And
1: a trend in her life. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Yeah. So going back to the school and the past timeline, we see at the beginning of Mia and Grace's relationship this creation of the couple bubble and and this idea that where one partner is lacking, the other partner picks up. So you've already mentioned how Grace was the one to go to Coach Miller and advocate for Mia and say, Mia really wants to be part of this. Right. Team. Why wouldn't
1: you want her on your team?
0: Exactly. And then later,
1: and and achieves that goal for Mia. Yeah, you know it, they sort of bend the rules so that they can have a, a a water girl for you know lack of a better word.
0: Right, right. And then later there is a bully at the school. I don't really I don't remember her name, but she looks like every blonde. Let's just call her James. Bully, Spader. mean girl. Yeah, there's the James Spader of the school, and she takes. Grace's necklace, the one that has so much meaning to her from her home, from her staircase, and the
1: actual planet, the staircase.
0: Yeah, from the actual <laughs> planet, of the staircase, and um, and like Mia sees that Grace is clearly distraught over losing this necklace, and Mia makes it her personal mission to get the necklace back from the bully.
1: So jumping ahead a little bit to the moment where. Mia convinces Grace to go with her after hours to the Lutz Tower, where the flying uh, fish ships are located, and she wants to test out her flying abilities for the sport. Mm-hmm. And she has to do that under the cover of night and darkness, without the coaches watching. And Grace agrees, and they go. Grace
0: is reluctant at first. She's Grace is like this sounds dangerous, and she's uh- she doesn't
1: have the faith. In Mia that Mia has in herself to excel at this sport immediately.
0: Right. And and, um, I think Grace also doesn't like the idea of- Breaking rules. Being in trouble necessarily.
1: (laughs) Even though she is an outsider and that's where we met her, at the principal's office.
0: That's true. But um, what eventually gets Grace to go is she goes like, well- if I'm going to be a writer, I need to go on adventures. So, for Life writing reasons, yeah. yeah, for writing reasons, I will go do this uh, adventure with so you. So they go
1: and break into the uh, tower. They get a hold of one of the flying uh, fishes, and what happens? Of course, Mia crashes the damn thing.
0: She does, and then. Um, Mia is tries to convince Grace to lie for her. Yeah, and, and Grace, Grace won't do not it. Not going to have
1: any of it. Yeah, because she wants to be out and proud with the, the her the her, her behavior, what she has done. She's not in the business of masking anything for anybody.
0: So what which ends is sort up happening? giving her past. So what ends up happening from Mia's perspective is that it just weirdly doesn't come up again. And Mia is walking around with this kind of guilt in her belly over what happened. And we don't, um, so their love continues to blossom. Eventually they end up going to the dance together. Yeah,
1: and she doesn't realize that there is this thing between them, this moment that they shared, but they share it from two different points of view. Mm -hmm. And it's those two different points of view that sort of severs their relationship.
0: That's not exactly it. Because what happens is Mia goes to or Coach Miller comes to Mia and goes
1: like— Before the dance.
0: Yeah, and, and goes like, you haven't really been coming to um, Lutz right. anymore. We have a thing coming up, and you haven't come since the crash. And Mia's like, eh. And Coach Miller goes, well, I know that you weren't responsible for that. So Mia thinks that somebody else—
1: Has t- taken the blame.
0: Has taken the blame for her. And then we find out after the dance— that actually Grace took the blame and the reason she hid it was because the reason she was able to take the blame was because-
1: Of her privilege.
0: Of her privilege coming from the staircase and she's not really ready to tell Grace about the, the staircase. staircase. Right. And that is one of my favorite scenes in this whole story. We kind of, we we hate to do this because we kind of rushed over the first kiss moment which was very beautiful, but I really feel like this is the instance that's like the consummation of the, the establishment of them as a true romantic, not just kitty love type couple. Grace starts getting worked up and going like, you're going to hate me now because I took this blame, but I can't tell you why. And Mia is hurt by that. And e- Mia's like, you're an idiot. And Grace is like, what? And she goes like, you don't realize... Oh, I want to do the exact quote. So I'm just going to read it. Okay. It says, I like all of you, Grace, even the parts I don't get yet. I'm not dating the 12% of you that I understand. I'm dating the 100% of you, including all your secrets that I don't know. So don't ever say that I'd hate you because that's stupid and not true.
1: So in some ways, that is an incredibly naive, young thing to say, but also one of the most like Powerfully romantic concepts.
0: And it's, I think that it's a true thing because, w- like, in our relationship, we're not the same people we started out as. A decade ago when we met each other. When we
1: started dating, we did not know everything about the other person.
0: Exactly. And we still don't because we're always evolving and always changing and always discovering new things about ourselves and each
1: other. Yes, but I think we know each other right now more. More than 12%. Than, than 12% <laughs> and more than what Grace and Mia know of each other at the start of their relationship.
0: But I do think that when it comes to the establishment of a couple bubble, this idea of like blamelessness or like um, non-judgmentalness of going like you, you be one hundred percent you. And we'll go from there. Don't feel guilty about all of this stuff you're hiding from me. Just understand that I am interested in you as a whole person. Right.
1: And, you know, a person's flaws end up being part of their appeal as well. You know, the way – oh, gosh, this is a dangerous – territory I've just waded into. But the way that like when you walk into a room after a hard day's work and you just explode <laughs> with clothes and purses and, and 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 whatever you're carrying goes into every single corner of the apartment. Yes, Like that was something when we were first getting together, I would try to curb you of like, Lisa,
0: we why put- don't you put your keys in the same place twice?
1: Yeah, put your keys where I put my keys. Let's have this one spot. And you're like, no, that's not how I am. And you have to learn to love that Cute little tick. And I'm sure there are things about me that you've had to learn to love or you've grown to love Mm -hmm. uh, that, that you maybe thought were annoyances originally.
0: I think that's true.
1: I'm not going to ask you to point them out. I mean, nothing comes to mind. You are so (laughs)
0: flawless.
1: (laughs) But Grace and Mia have reached a point where they truly trust each other. There's the gym class sequence where there's they're practicing weightlessness Mm -hmm. and they're holding each other, and it's basically trust fall exercises in this magical world.
0: Right. Right. And I there's a beautiful scene that happens a little bit past that that is probably in terms of, like, relationships in comic book couples, I have literally never seen before.
1: Oh, well, oh yeah.
0: And it's um, an open conversation between lovers about consent. Right, uh, right, 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 right. So um, Grace has been reading Mia her story that she is writing, and little does Mia know it's about the staircase, where she comes from, but, but Mia just thinks it's out of Grace's imagination and, um, Mia tells her like, I, you know, I love it. It's, it's mysterious and scary, but I'm like totally into it. And they start, uh, kissing and kind of tickle fighting. And, um, Grace is like, Haha, stop, it tickles. And then Mia is kind of taken aback by that. And she's like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. And then Grace is like, no, not, it's not that kind of stop. And Mia asks, but you'll let me know, right? If you want me to stop or slow down, yeah, you won't hurt my feelings. And Grace is like, "I I will." And then um is like, a, "Well, you'll tell me, right?" And M- Mia says like, "You can do anything to me." <laughs> and Grace laughs is like, "You be serious." And she's like, "I'll tell you." And I think that that's really
1: that scene had an impression on you.
0: Yeah, because Because that's how relationships should really start, especially when you're blossoming into doing something sexual, like that idea of putting out there like, you know, you can tell me that you don't want to do something or you want me to pull back from doing something. But we're like, we're so used to like watching movies where like two teenagers are laughing and then all of a sudden they're having sex or whatever.
1: Or it doesn't seem no means yes. We've seen a thousand times. And
0: it like people are under this false impression of like, it's not romantic to ask for consent. May I kiss you? But it doesn't have to be like that. It just has to be like, you know that you are allowed to put boundaries on me.
1: Yeah. In in YA fiction, this scene I think should it's be really, everywhere. I
0: think it's really important. And I think it's still sexy and still beautiful.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I agree. It's a great, great moment. But great moments are not meant to last. <laughs> and this can't be a book about Mia and Grace In love indefinitely. And because we know about the present timeline, they're not together there. So their relationship has to shatter. And what happens is Grace receives a letter from her family. Something has happened at the staircase. They are coming to retrieve her from the school. So sorry. Too bad.
0: So Mia's like, what's going on? And uh, Grace tells her like, everything we read in the stories, that's true. My family kind of runs this crazy planet, and now I have to go back.
1: So real quick, we haven't actually said what the staircase is, but it's this almost mythical planet. It's been severed from the rest of the universe, and there are tremendous resources there that people will want, but it's also filled with magical creatures. And it's
0: extremely toxic. Like most people have to live underneath the ground,
1: but not Grace's family. But not Grace's family. Because they're, they're hardcore. They're hardcore, but they're also, they're, they're the rulers the of the staircase.
0: Right. And at first, Mia doesn't quite understand why why Grace is like so distraught over this and and how this is like, they'll never see each other again. Because
1: she has no understanding. She only has 12%, Lisa.
0: That's right. That's right.
1: And the sisters eventually do show up to take her away. And they meet Mia.
0: They meet Mia first. And they like Mia. They do. In actuality, um,
1: it's not the conflict that you thought it was going to be.
0: Right. But they're still like, yeah, we're still leaving. Oh, no. They make her choose. They make her choose and say, like, conditions back home are so terrible that if you don't come home now— you can never come home again. There's no guarantee you'll ever see your mother again. Right.
1: So pick either returning to see mom and the staircase or be with Mia. Yeah, and, and she, she
0: chooses to go home. Right. And Mia just has a flare-up. And she's like, well, that was just too easy of a choice. Like, you didn't even stop to think That's about what it. what happens
1: when you only know 12% of the person, Lisa.
0: She's heartbroken. <laughs> and Mia runs out of the room and... Her sis and Grace's sisters are like, just f- forget her. She does not understand what's going on. You barely know her, and Grace is like, we're s- like we're a stronger couple than you think. And then she chases Mia, but Mia
1: has been imprisoned.
0: Mia gets away, and the bu- when she's out of sight, the bully stuffs her in the closet. So the next morning. Grace is waiting for her to say goodbye and she never comes.
1: And so she sees that as, okay, we're done. And that's the end of Mia and Grace until Mia joins up with this reconstruction crew.
0: Exactly. But you think in terms of Stan Tatkin quick repair, like this is just like an open wound for both of them because-
1: They didn't Grace, get to say goodbye. Yeah,
0: Grace never had the satisfaction of ending the relationship Mia feels like there was there now there's this huge misunderstanding between them.
1: not just a misunderstanding, but a mystery. There's a question, right. and that question rots inside Mia. certainly. We don't know it's rotting inside Grace. We don't really know what's happening with Grace because we're not following her during the present timeline. Right. But we now start to understand who this person is on this ship out constructing and and rebuilding these structures
0: and the fact that she feels like her life is out of control. like her getting stuck in a closet. Like, that's her life out of control.
1: And so at this point in the present timeline, uh, Char and Alma have been broken up because the company says, hey, you destroyed this building. Uh, Suspension for Char and Alma is left on board.
0: Right. And then they get the new captain who is Joe who doesn't have any kind of interest in establishing rapport with the crew. She-
1: Refuses to learn the they, them pronouns. For Mm L, which
0: pisses Jules off to no end. And they're like, screw this.
1: When they learn about Mia's story about Grace at the staircase, they decide to make- her story, their mission, and they abandon the job.
0: Yeah, and they go pick up Char. And and we find out that Elle is actually from the staircase, so they have an inside person. And will help
1: navigate the toxicity and the weird magical creatures. Yeah,
0: <laughs> but- they also have a very dark and complicated past with the staircase that I don't even know we'll get into on no, this podcast. No, we don't have time for <laughs> uh
1: we're Read pr- this almost book. at the hour mark, Lisa. Oh
0: my goodness. Read this book. It's a tome, but it's beautiful.
1: Right, right, right. Well, I you know, I hate to yada 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 this <laughs> yeah. beautiful book when I'm gonna do it. Yada yada yada. They find grace, they reunite finally.
0: Right. And you have to realize that all Mia wants to do. With Grace, for Grace, is talk to her. So they go through a lot of rigmarole. Well,
1: she wants to say, I I wanted to be there. I wanted to say goodbye. I was locked and bound.
0: But for like a more military-minded ship, like the idea of going way off course for a conversation, that's like a huge gesture for one person. I think that it's huge.
1: You mean in the sense of the crew, a gesture for the crew to go through this hellish ordeal just to put two people together so they could chat.
0: Like with the idea of at the beginning of this book, she was like this big time outsider. And then by the end of this book, they're
1: willing to- Lay down their lives.
0: Right. So that she can complete this area of her life.
1: Oh yeah. Agreed. And not something that most sci-fi epics climax on.
0: Right. Words.
1: Well, we got to talk about that conversation.
0: Absolutely. So when they first meet face-to-face, Grace's reaction is not like to to run up and hug her and kiss her, but it's like, Mia, like, what are you doing here? And I think that the conversation that—
1: Right, because Grace has been thinking that— Mia just never showed up and that great that Mia made a decision back then. But the truth is she was denied a decision.
0: Right. So what Mia has to tell Grace is not like, let's pick up where we left off, but rather like back in the day, I heard what your sister said and it sounded like you were kind of being backed into a corner. So I just wanted to put it out there. That if you need options, we have options. If you need another place to go, me and my crew, these people that I've been traveling with, they'll make room for you. Whoever you are and whoever you are to
1: me. But if that's not the case, that's fine too. I just want you to know that I am here and I was here.
0: Exactly. And I think that that is such a beautiful... like. We all have friendships, relationships that just kind of go like, that just kind of stop. Like, even if you're just talking in terms of friendships, people that you see for very many years and just kind of stop. And you always go like, I wonder what happened to so-and-so. And just that idea of, there's been a lot of time that passed, but there's still room in my life for you if you want it. But if you don't want it, we both have lives.
1: And that's the end of the book for the most part.
0: Right. And Grace is like, well... Let me think about it, and they go off, and Mia and the crew are starting to leave, and then Grace shows up and is like, yeah, I actually do want to come, and Mia's like, great, and the rest of the crew is like, awesome, and then uh, they drop Char and Alma off, they want to live together, Mia becomes the new captain, they're shooting off into space, nearly die, But they don't, and that's how the book ends. Yeah,
1: uh, it's it's such a good, such a good uh, conclusion. And I don't know about you, but, like, I could easily read another 500 pages uh, in this world with Grace and Mia and the crew and whatever else they do from this point on.
0: I think whatever else they do is important and whatever else that they don't do. Like, I could just be happy just floating through space on a fish just hanging out with these characters—that's the thing.
1: On a sunbeam is a complete arc. You know, it is the story of two people coming together, two people going apart, not being denied their proper uh, goodbyes, and then later in life reuniting. It's it's it's
0: in terms of the second storyline, the storyline of restoring buildings and stuff. I barely remember anything about that. Mostly, I remember the story of me and grace. And I remember how much I love hanging out with jewels and how L is so curious to me. And
1: you leave the book in love with the characters. I also leave the book in love with the world and yeah. wanting to explore more elements of what Tilly Walden has formulated here. I think it's just such a unique blend of Craig Thompson, uh, Miyazaki. Miyazaki, you know, like Harry really, Potter, Harry Potter. Yeah, it, it's like it's all the things you love smashed into one confection. Yeah. 500 page confection. So it's a feast. Maybe it's not such a treat. We keep as much talking as whole about cake.
0: We, we talk about how fat this book is. It's not like a super like I think I read it in like two sittings.
1: Yeah, it's not like reading, um, I don't know, Avengers versus X-Men, where it's 5,000 billion words. Right. It's a it's a quick read, so don't be intimidated by the page count.
0: But it's a, like a wade. You like wade through this book.
1: Yeah, and I think it's one of those books where when you after you put it down, it stays with you, mm-hmm. and y- you look back fondly on it.
0: Yeah, it's dreamy, yeah. dreamlike.
1: Okay, Lisa, that brings us to the end of our series- we co- we've covered Bloom, another story of young love. We've covered bingo love, another story of a love denied that then found a second chance. Mm-hmm. And we did Midnighter and Apollo, which is a lot like going to the staircase, going to hell.
0: Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, can't really connect on a sunbeam to Midnighter and Apollo so easily.
0: I think that they both have similar themes about this building of trust. And in the case of Midnighter and Apollo, they, they were on uneven trust because of a kind of heartbreak because they had to to break up. Yeah, that's
1: true. And that is similar to the midway point of on a sunbeam when Mia and Grace are separated and are, are denied their their uh, quick, relief. quick relief. They're yeah. not
0: they're not able to soothe each other in this time of their being separated.
1: Yeah, so there you go. A uh, successful month of comics. Uh, s- something new and unique for this podcast. We jumped around from different publishers to different characters to different genres. We
0: read graphic novels versus collected comics. Although
1: Midnight and Apollo was a collected comic. True. So we did the whole thing. We did yeah. the whole thing. So I hope you guys enjoyed this month. Like we said at the start of the show, it seems like we've picked up a lot of listeners. I hope you continue to join us next month when we go back into our usual routine of following one couple all month long, right? but I don't want to get ahead of myself. Lisa, we got to talk about what we saw of ourselves in On a Sunbeam and you know what we can apply from Mia and uh, Grace's relationship to our relationship. What did you see of yourself in this book?
0: I think from Mia and Grace's relationship, we can take that idea of What is a way that you can lighten the burden for your partner? Like Grace saw how Mia was burdened by not being able to take part in the Lutz game. And so Grace saw that as that's something I can take care of for her. Or in the reverse, like um, Mia going like, I I can get your powers back. I can get your necklace back. So this idea of your partner is in your life, to help you, help carry burdens for you, help make your life easier. Also, the idea of quiet love, just sitting together and being together and building that bond in a less active way.
1: Uh, you know, uh, I think for me, what I respond to most is something that we've talked about in previous episodes a little bit using different language. But here, this idea of not going to bed angry, you
0: right? Know, not
1: ending the day with uh, a, an argument festering. You know, certainly you don't want to spend years <laughs> uh, contemplating a mystery of how a relationship should have gone, how a conversation should have gone.
0: I think there is something to Stan Tatkin's idea of a dre- like soothe the feeling first and then deal with the conflict second. Like going like, I'm putting myself in your shoes. I'm understanding why you're upset. Now let's look at the situation and make it so it's either mutually beneficial or whatever.
1: And I would say taking that idea of putting empathy, you know, or or, or finding the empathy in the person who's getting upset. When you're the upset person, when mm-hmm. you are in the heat of the emotion, also taking a pause understanding how you got to this place. Do you want to be in this place? By being in
0: this place, how am I making my partner feel?
1: Right. Uh, Just get
0: that squirt of oxytocin of empathy from being in the other person's shoes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I think, I think that's, that's very important.
0: I think this is also, this is like, we've been together for a decade. We know, we know well over 12%, but I think for people who are entering a new relationship, I think, The idea of creating a safe place for your partner to express themselves. This idea of um, Mia going like, I'm not dating 12% of you. I'm dating all of you. So you're in a safe place to reveal yourself to me on your terms. Mm -hmm. And I'm here to accept it, I think is a really beautiful thing. But you have
1: to believe that before you offer that.
0: I mean, when you're dating someone, the idea is we're either going to end up together or we're not. And I think that like in our culture we've focused too much on, on like
1: on the finish line.
0: Like like if you guys don't ultimately end up together, that that's a failed relationship and I just don't think that's true. I think that not every relationship is going to last till death, like, ding, 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 finish line, like, some relationships function in their own way, in their own time, and then end. So, like, if, like, you've, we've gotten to the point, we've gotten past 12%, and we've gotten to 42%, and we discover, like, okay, we're not really meant to be together, like, then, like, the idea uh, like, you shouldn't be really, if you're really strongly considering someone you want to be with, then you should feel comfortable to reveal your whole self. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. That doesn't mean that you're a bad person. That doesn't mean that you didn't try. That doesn't mean that you failed. It just means, like, you two are not the two. And that's totally fine. Um, I think other, also the idea of consent. Like, I think that every person, when they're first starting dating or, you know, experimenting sexually, this idea of it is cool to, like, if you're in the place of power offering, like, hey— You can turn me down. Like, I will not get mad. I will not lash out. You will not hurt my feelings if you say, I don't want to do this with you today.
1: And I would like to see that explored in more popular fiction.
0: Absolutely. In
1: all mediums. Yes. Okay, there you go. That brings us to the end of this episode. Next week, we are starting a new series, Lisa. You know who we're talking about. You're excited, aren't you? I'm super excited. So for the entire month of April, guys, guess what's coming out at the end of April? On April 26th, 25th, for you Thursday night fans, (gasps) Avengers Endgame. Oh, yeah. Uh, You know. Uh, 11 years of the MCU has been building to this moment. Um, I, I am incredibly excited to see what all these actors and writers and producers have in store for us. W- where are we going to meet Thanos after that quiet, contented smile on the farm that we last saw him have on, in Avengers Infinity War?
0: Will Thanos ever find love yeah, so after the end game?
1: There you go. <laughs> Guys, we've got to talk about the darkest and most disturbed relationships in the entire MCU. This is not a healthy one that we are going to be venturing into in April. We're talking Thanos and his beloved death, the personification.
0: So stoked. So what- arc are we starting with? What book?
1: So we're going to start at not necessarily the publication beginning of Thanos and Death's relationship, but in the uh, biographical beginning with the comic book Thanos Rising written by Jason Aaron and illustrated by Simon, Simon, Simon? Simone? Simone, Simone Bianchi. I thought
0: that you nailed the harder name, Bianchi. I think is a way harder name than Simone.
1: But no, I fumbled up on the Simone. I'm not going to re-edit it. It's fine. (laughs) We're doing
0: a late record, people. Uh, late
1: record, like we always do and say we're never going to do. Uh, but yes, yeah, so Thanos Rising. This is the origin of both Thanos and the origin of Thanos and Death's relationship. And I can tell you, yes, we're going to cover the Infinity Gauntlet at some point, And we're going to cover Donny Cates's run, Thanos Wins. We're still looking for that other books so we've got three books nailed down so listeners if you have a thanos death comic that we have to read please let us know we want to hear about it tweet us send us notes on instagram email us at cbccpodcast at gmail.com we want to hear your favorite thanos death storylines yes okay lisa how are we going to help thanos and death through their most troubled and disturbed relationship
0: I am really, it's its going to be tough to follow up Dr. Stan Tatkin. We know how much I enjoyed his psychobiological approach to romance and dating, but I'm super excited about our next love expert because it is Brene Brown. You may have seen her TED Talk about the power of vulnerability because I think if Thanos could use Anything, it could be more vulnerability in the way... So the, the title of the book, she's done a couple of, of books that I'm very much interested in um, from the titles. Um, she has one called The Gifts of Imperfection, and I thought it was just me. Um, but the book that we're going to be reading is called Daring Greatly, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead. So this isn't strictly... A relationship book. But she says in the introduction how if we approach all things with the idea of vulnerability being a strength, vulnerability is something that we tend to admire in others. But when we see it in ourselves, we see it as a weakness. So that idea of transforming vulnerability from a weakness to a strength in ourselves can empower us to live the lives that we want to lead. And I think that that's what Thanos really needs,
1: Okay, well, let's let's fingers crossed. I hope we can fix that guy. <laughs> Lisa, uh, where can our listeners send their words of affirmations to you this week?
0: I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. Brad, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you?
1: You can find me on all social medias at Mouthdork, and I want to encourage all our listeners to head on over to Film School Rejects, where we are doing a road to endgame buildup And I've been uh, publishing or uh, republishing an article for every Marvel movie. So already we've got articles on Iron Man, The Incredible Hulk, Iron Man 2, and dropping uh, today, Monday, is an article on Thor. And
0: And you do not, like, if you like this podcast, you're going to love Brad's articles about each different Avengers film, because he really loves to dive into character and character analysis, and his take on Tony Stark has created a little controversy on the internet. Well,
1: I don't know about controversy, but I'm definitely hearing from people who are uh, annoyed at me, and I appreciate that. (laughs) Trolls. Here's the thing. Like- It's not just my take on Iron Man. It's my take on the Marvel Universe. And I say it's the take that Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, Jack Kirby, all those original Golden Age guys uh, had with their characters is that their characters are tremendously flawed. And when we talk about MCU having a villain problem, which is a conversation I think we were having a few years ago uh, before – I would say uh, Infinity War Black I think Thanos, Panther too. Thanos has really solved a lot of people's woes as far as the villain problem is but when we bemoan the lack of good Marvel villains in the MCU movies it's because the focus is on the heroes and their flaws and their failings and it's that idea the you know their, the falling down that we uh, that that defines our appreciation for these characters. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. And it's what I love about comic book characters, the fact that they have to overcome their own shortcomings before they can defeat
1: evil. Yeah, It's that moment in Avengers Age of Ultron, which I just rewatched uh, earlier, where the Vision explains it to Ultron at the climax, where he says there is grace in their failings. Mm-hmm. Boom. That's the entire definition of the Marvel Universe right there. Anyway, go to Film School Rejects, read my articles, I'd really appreciate it. Share them, say nice things or don't. Uh, Just read, please.
0: And you can commit to this podcast by following us on Instagram and Twitter, at CBCC Podcast, and subscribing to us on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. And if you're over at iTunes, why not give us the gift of five stars? Yeah, be cool
1: like Chris Chaka.
0: That's right, and leave, leave us a couple of words of affirmation on the reviews, and, and we'll read
1: it on the air. We'll
0: read it on the air and we'll just feel good. And isn't it nice to, to express goodness and kindness yeah. and niceness?
1: All right, folks, until next time, keep your love tank full
0: and your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy.